0: Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, where we develop educational resources for motivated students, including textbooks, an online school, in-person learning centers, and a variety of online applications. We build the tools we wish we had when we were students. Welcome to Aftermath where we talk to fascinating people in and around the STEM world about where they've been, where they are now, and how their passion for math helped them get there. I'm your host, Richard Rusick. My guest today is Dr. Catherine Asaro. It's impossible to pin a career label on Catherine. She's been a dancer, a musician, and a Nebula Award-winning author of over two dozen novels. She's also a very successful math team coach whose students have won many major state and national competitions. And before all that, she earned a Ph.D. in chemical physics from Harvard. Today, she'll talk about how her love of math and science developed throughout childhood and into college, how her career plans took a detour when she discovered her passion for storytelling, and how she settled on a path that brought together her identities as both a scientist and a writer. You'll hear about her time in grad school and in academia, learn about what it takes to become an acclaimed science fiction writer, and find out why quantum mechanics is just as exciting as an epic space battle. Catherine also discusses the challenges of raising a profoundly gifted daughter of her own and how her decision to start a small math club wound up exploding into something far bigger than she ever could have expected. Welcome to the show, Catherine.
1: Hi, I'm delighted to be here.
0: Excellent. Let's let's start with your childhood. How did you first get interested in math and science?
1: Well, my father was a chemist at the University of California, Berkeley. He was actually at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, which is connected to the university. And he used to take me up to his lab and let me play with things, or he used to show us really cool stuff like liquid nitrogen. He'd show me how putting a flower in liquid nitrogen, and then you could hit it with a, a hammer or something, and it would shatter. And I just thought this was really cool. I was like five or six at the time. (laughs) So I grew up with that. And he used to do this thing where they had a Geiger counter that you had to check yourself on before you left the laboratory because he was a nuclear chemist. And he'd show me how when he stuck his watch in the, the Geiger counter machine, it would get all excited. And he explained what it meant. So I was exposed to science and mathematics from a very early age.
0: So through most of your childhood, were you fairly convinced you were going to become a scientist, a mathematician, something in that space?
1: Actually, no. Um, Back then, girls didn't do science and math as much. And I was also a ballet dancer. I loved dancing. I mean, I started that when I was about, I think I was four or five. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to be a dancer. I spent most of my youth uh, training in ballet. I always liked science, and I was actually, I had several teachers encourage me in high school, they said, you know, you have a lot of talent in this. But um, it wasn't until college where I realized that really was what I wanted to do.
0: So how'd you make that transition from defining yourself as, as a dancer to defining yourself as a scientist?
1: It wasn't abrupt. I always knew I liked science. I'd been very good at math in high school And probably one of the first indication was they were giving some math competition. It might have been an early version of the American math competitions, Mm -hmm. but it may have been before those existed the way we think of them now. But when I was in a senior in high school, they said, we had someone drop out of this math competition. You want to do it? Because we we think you have more talent than you think. (laughs) So I said, "Okay, what the heck? I'll do it." So I showed up at in the library, and there was like I don't know, maybe a hundred kids there, and I did this um, this test, and I came in in the top ten. And they said, "Oh, well, you know, maybe you should think about math too, mm-hmm. if you ever get bored with ballet." <laughs> <laughs> so I went to college, and I knew I was frustrated with the dance department. I was at UCLA, which is huge. Mm-hmm so i started I took a math class here science class there and i decided okay i'm gonna try chemistry and i had no chemistry at all i'd never taken anything resembling chemistry i thought i had i knew so little about it i actually thought i had because i'd done some lab work for a teacher but it was physics what i was doing not chemistry okay So I said, okay, I better study for this because I didn't even understand what the terms meant. So I spent this wonderful summer living in Santa Cruz with a friend on the beach and doing chemistry all day. I mean, it was idyllic. You couldn't ask for a for someone who likes science and math. It was perfect. So I was so happy with that when I went to, at UCLA, everybody has to take a placement test. So a thousand people showed up in this huge auditorium when we all took the chemistry placement test. And I was just coming off of spending all summer doing chemistry problems. So I did really well. And they put me in the honors course. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember they sent us to the lab and said, okay, check off all your, your equipment. I didn't even know what a Bunsen burner was. (laughs) I was was kind of looking out of the corner of my eyes and the person next to me marked off Bunsen burner. So I figured out what it was from that. So you have a moment of
0: panic there.
1: Well, I didn't panic. I didn't realize enough about how absurd what I was doing was to panic. I was too young to really comprehend. So I just did my best to stay afloat. And I was doing okay. I mean, I was getting a B because I had to, you know, fill in. I had a lot of holes. Mm. Everything was holes. But then one day we were, I don't know, maybe halfway through the course. And I decided I'm going to go to the library and study. You know, I hadn't, I never had to study when I was young because, you know, I just, everything came really easy. And I said, I'm going to go sit down and study. You know, I'm going to sit there for an hour and see if I can get better grades. So at 10 in the morning, I went to the library. And I sat down. I opened the book to the chapter was called, if I remember correctly, it was called Electronic Structure. It was basically an introduction to quantum mechanics. And I started reading it and I thought to myself, this makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it might have been because I was brought up by someone who's a nuclear chemist. So I'd, I'd been around all this all my life. And I think I absorbed it without realizing it.
0: That's interesting. So that, I mean, like a lot of people when they first encounter that stuff, their reaction is this can't possibly be true.
1: See, it felt natural to me. Quantum mechanics always felt more natural to me even than classical mechanics. And the more advanced it got, the better I liked it. And I think the reason is because it's very mathematical. What I loved about it was solving partial differential equations and finding these beautiful wave functions that were just amazed me. And then you get to apply the math to something that's real in the physical world. I was just utterly floored by this, that it worked. It all worked. And that's why, you know, theoretical physicists are really applied mathematicians. That's what I love about math is applying it. It's like a game which is probably why I like coaching for math competitions, too. (laughs) But, you know, I went that day and I started reading it and I thought, I really like this stuff. So I read the whole chapter and then I I looked in the book and the next chapter was more. (laughs) So I read that, you know, all about the hydrogen atom and the wave functions and all this stuff. And then the next chapter went on to something else. So I went up to the library. And I said to the guy up there, do you have anything? I went up to the physics library, which is a separate library in the big library at UCLA. And I said to the fellow there, do you have anything on this quantum mechanics stuff? <laughs> and he said, let me show you what we have. And he gave me these books, which I didn't realize at the time were famous quantum mechanics texts, like Pauling and Wilson. And You know, they're dated now, but at the time, they were the big text in quantum mechanics. And I was just in seventh heaven. I went back down the library and I'm reading and I'm looking at pictures of wave functions and I was just having a great time. I do remember at one point I got up and went to a vending machine and got something to eat. Otherwise I just kept sitting there. Mm -hmm. Finally somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I was like kind of annoyed right (laughs) and I looked around and I said yes and this policeman or not policeman a guard the security guard was standing there. He was very nice. He said I'm sorry, ma'am, but you have to go. The library's closing. It was midnight. I was the only person left in the room. And I knew then. I knew I'd found what I loved. And that's what I ended up doing. I, I started doing a research project for the teacher of that class who figured out he'd found mm-hmm. someone who loved what he did for a living. And then he recommended I go to Harvard. So I went to the chemical physics program at Harvard and did a, a theoretical um doctorate in basically quantum scattering theory.
0: So is this a common pattern for you? Is just to stumble on something new and then immerse yourself super deeply in it over a short period of time.
1: Is that um your- yeah, you know, that's funny. I never thought of it that way. I wouldn't say over a short period of time. <laughs> I would say I get captivated by something and I have a bit of an ornery personality in that if people tell me I can't do something, I mean, part of me internalizes that. It goes, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't help when someone says you can't do it. Part of you will internalize that, but the stronger part of me thinks, yeah, you just wait and see. (laughs)
0: Right. right. You know,
1: I'll show you, right. If I want to do it, if it's something I want to do and yeah. so when people said, you can't go from being a dance major to, you know, a theoretical physicist, I just ignored them.
0: So at what point were you in your undergrad when you made that transition? Was this first year, second year, or was it closer to the end?
1: I think I actually changed my major toward the end of my okay. second year. It's been a while. Yeah. But I, had, what happened was the first year I was a dance major... And it was mostly modern dance, and I was a ballet dancer, so I was a bit like a fish out of water. Yeah. And I started trying out other classes. Like, I took honors physics, not because anyone told me to, but because it was off year. That is, usually you start at the beginning of the year and then, you know, progress as the year goes. Well, I decided halfway through the year to take physics, and the only thing available was honors physics. Right. So I took it and i thought oh i like this i'm struggling i'm not sure you know it was always a struggle because i didn't have the background mm-hmm. but i liked it and so i said i'll take another class i like computer programming well we called it computer programming kids nowadays would laugh at what we were doing <laughs> you know that's when like we had cards yeah your punch cards computer. there you go yeah, right. yeah. and i would drop them on the floor and then i have to figure out how they went together <laughs> but that was fun i had fun with that and somewhere along the line, they called me into the dance office and they said, you've been here almost two years and you've taken no dance classes the past year.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're a year behind and you got all this physics and chemistry and math. You know, I was taking like linear algebra or something. Mm-hmm. And they said, we think you should rethink what you want to major So I didn't know. I didn't know enough. And the chemical engineering department really wanted me because I was taking some of their classes Mm -hmm. too. So first I went to chemical engineering and I got inducted into their honor society. So this was cool. But then I realized I really wanted to do mathematics, you know, applied math. I liked applying it. So the guy that I worked for in the chemistry department, the one who was a quantum uh, chemical physicist, he became my mentor, and I, I switched I switched colleges three times. First, I was in the College of Fine Arts. Mm-hmm. Then I was in the College of Engineering. And finally, I went to the College of, I think it was called Letters and Sciences. So I graduated with high honors in chemistry.
0: So what did you think was going to happen when you went off to grad school? What, what, was, what was your thinking at that point? Were you thinking, I'm eventually going to be a scientist? I'm going to be a professor? I'm going yeah. to be...
1: Yeah, I figured I'd be a professor. And I I actually did. For three years, I was a professor. But something happened again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's hear about that.
1: Well, you know, I like I'd always since I was a kid made up stories in my head. You know, that's why I never did homework Mm -hmm. until I got to college because I was always making up these stories. And I didn't really need to do my homework. You know, I do not advise that. I'm not even sure I should talk much about that because I don't want to encourage you, your listeners, not to do their homework. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's something with, I probably fell into the category of, you know, highly gifted or whatever they call it now. Mm-hmm. And I was bored in school because I wasn't challenged and they didn't know how to challenge me. They didn't know as much about it back when I was young. And especially for girls. Girls weren't encouraged as much back then to to go into math and science, so nobody knew what to do with me.
0: So did you just have lots of time sitting there by yourself?
1: Yeah, I would make yeah. up stories in my head, and so I had this even, whole universe.
0: So you weren't even about. writing them down at this point. You were just making no. everything up, and no. yeah, and this I just starts make them up. your elementary school when this starts.
1: I was actually about three.
2: When okay. I started doing
1: and, you know, they're all a little bit older than me. So when I was three, it was about a five-year-old. <laughs> she okay. was going out and saving the universe, even though she was five years old. <laughs> so, it was always science fiction.
0: Oh, so even in these early stories, you're taking kind of the things you've been exposed to by your father, perhaps, and integrating them into the stories that you're imagining.
1: Well, I don't know where it came from. I mean, my dad wasn't a... a I mean, I was, he was interested in the science program. Everybody was back then. That was just before Apollo got going. Mm-hmm. But um, I just, I don't know. I just started, it was innate. Maybe it's genetic. <laughs> but I, I loved it. I lo- you know, it's what people now get into gaming a lot. I probably would have gotten into gaming if it had existed back then. But it didn't. So I just made up stories in my head. Mm-hmm. So these girls went out and saved the universe. Okay. <laughs> And then, you know, usually they went with their cats, because I read this book called Space Cat Goes to Mars, you know, Space Cat Goes to Venus. It was this cat who went these places with his astronaut. You know, the astronaut thought he owned the cat, but really you knew the cat, the astronaut belonged to the cat. That's right. So then, you know, I hit puberty around 11, and the cats turned into handsome boys. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and then we went into space together, and instead of rescuing the cat, I had to rescue the, the pilot, you know, yeah. the young man. And I, I started, one day I thought, I started drawing pictures of how I envisioned the characters. I think I was like, this was actually when I was very young, maybe, I don't know, 11?
0: And you're still not writing them down at this point?
1: At that point, I thought maybe I should try and write it down. Okay. And so I did. I'm sure it was awful, whatever I wrote. But I I fast realized I didn't know enough about the things I wanted to write. I had this story where this girl was going to this cat planet to rescue this pilot who, you know, flew around the galaxy with her. Uh I don't know where I came up with this stuff. But she gets to this planet and she has to sneak into this military installation. And, you know, she's dressed the way 11-year-old girls dressed back in the (laughs) 60s, right? In in this dress with paisleys and a a necklace. (laughs) Absolutely no sense, right? I didn't know what to do with that. I thought, well, how is she going to, she doesn't have stuff she needs to go into a military installation and rescue a person, you know, her Mm -hmm. pilot who's there. And my thought, maybe she could use the beads. And then I had the beads break and they scattered all over the floor. And I thought, this is not doing anything. This is not achieving anything. And so my thought at that time in my young mind was, I don't know enough to write the story, to do the story justice. If I'd been a little bit older, I probably would have thought, well, maybe I can do research and learn it. And mm-hmm. I might have gone to my parents and said, how do you do this? But... It didn't occur to me. I was too young, I guess. So I just quit writing.
0: So when do you come back to it?
1: Well, when I was, I mentioned I changed colleges three times Mm -hmm. at UCLA. I mean, I changed colleges within the larger university. Each time I did that, I had to do new breath requirements because the breath requirements from the last college didn't apply to the new one. And the required classes from the last college couldn't be used as breath for the new college. So I had a huge number of credits. I had to start redoing my major three times. And so I had to stay an extra semester. Actually, people thought I was going to stay an extra year. Mm -hmm. And the second semester, they said, look, you know, you have an honors average. You've completed more credits than anybody else. We're not going to make you do anything more. And they actually let me drop several classes that technically were required because, you know, they were being nice to me. Mm-hmm. So they said, you, you're missing one breadth that you do have to have. So go to this anthropology professor that we found for you, and she'll let you take this course as, you know, a, a independent study. She'll just give you the materials. You do everything she said. You take the final, and that'll be it. So my last semester in college as an undergraduate, it was the same thing. I got to go to the beach. <laughs> and lie on the beach in beautiful Southern California beaches and read anthropology. So I read all these fascinating anthropology books, and I read all the notes that she gave me from her lectures. And I had a lot of time to myself. That's all UCLA required that I do, because I was way over the number of credits you needed to graduate. So I had time to write a book, and I wrote a full book. I'm sure it was awful. I don't know where it is. It's in a trunk somewhere. But it was a precursor to the, my stories now. And one thing immediately became clear to me. It took over my life when I started writing it. Mm-hmm. And I had to make a choice because I realized I loved doing it. But I also loved physics. And I wanted to go to graduate school and get my doctorate. So I put it away. This time, it wasn't because I didn't know how to do the research. It was because I knew too well what was required. And I knew I wouldn't finish my doctorate properly if I got distracted. And I was scared. I was going to Harvard. I was moving across country to a new state, a new part of the country, to a very difficult, you know, something at the time I perceived would be a very difficult experience. Mm -hmm. So I put it away for a few years. But then, Sometime when I was writing my thesis, it was about four years maybe into my doctorate, I got distracted by all this stuff in graduate school. I ran a whole dance program at Harvard. I founded it called the Mainly Jazz Dancers, which I'm pretty sure still exists today. I think the undergraduates took it over and are running it now. And I ran the Harvard University Ballet, so I was being distracted by dancing. And then one day I thought, I need to just sit down and clear my mind. As I was writing my thesis, and it was page after page of these long equations with infinite summations and all this beautiful stuff. I mean, it's all the spherical harmonic wave functions and partial wave expansions, but I needed a break. So I said, well, maybe I'll just write down a little bit of one of these stories. And I knew the minute I start writing, it took over. Yeah. And those were actually the seeds of the final books, my first books that were published. Um, I managed to discipline myself enough to finish my doctoral thesis while I was doing this. So I was actually writing about three different books at the same time. One was my thesis, Mm -hmm. which some people might say was my first work of science fiction.
0: (laughs) I mean, it was quantum mechanics, so it might have been science fiction.
1: (laughs) Well, no, I hope not. It was pretty dry, actually. you know photo quantum scattering theory of photo dissociation processes or something like that not the most exciting title <laughs> but that's when i wrote the first books and at that point i mean it took over i knew i wanted to become a writer but i stuck it out i mean i stuck it out for three years as a professor of physics because when you train for that many years you can't just walk away from it
0: so how how did you start to get traction with your writing? Like, did you quit being a professor and then go try to become a writer, or did the writing no. thing start happening and then you have an exit ramp?
1: Um, I never stopped writing. The moment I sat down and picked up a piece of paper in graduate school and started writing, I have not stopped since that day. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I stop because you know I have to teach classes or life gets in the way. You know, yeah. yeah. I had a kid, you know, (laughs) I kind of slowed things down for a while. But, I mean, I just kept writing and improving my craft. At the time when I was doing it, nothing existed like what we have today in terms of self-publishing. There was only one real realistic route to getting published. And that was to keep submitting to the big publishers until somebody, you know, said, yes, we'll publish you.
0: So you're just okay. sending books to publishers over and over, or novellas or short stories?
1: Well, I kept rewriting them. Like I would write the book. And I was writing as I was a professor. So I'd go home and I'd write the book and write my lectures for the next day. I knew within the third day of teaching that it wasn't what I wanted to do that what I really wanted to do was spend all my time writing. At that time I was teaching at a liberal arts school where it didn't have a strong emphasis on math and physics. So there weren't a lot of students who were interested. Most of the students I taught came from liberal arts who had to take physics, even though they didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the ideal teaching situation, but I knew that it wasn't, I wanted to write the books and eventually i had to acknowledge it i wasn't doing as good of a job as i could as a teacher and i think the department i think they realized it you know they could tell uh, and i finally had to make a choice you know which one am i going to do because i wasn't published yet
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so i was pregnant i was going to have a baby and at that time you know it was much less common for i was the only woman in the department and, you know, when you're the only one, everybody sees you as a representative of all women, right? <laughs> oh,
0: that's got to be hard.
1: Well, I wanted to have my baby and enjoy being a mom, and that wasn't really an option back then. You were expected to make choices in a way that now there's more flexibility. Like, I, I don't think I would have been able to take maternity leave.
2: Hmm.
1: And I was talking to my husband. And I said, well, we have to figure out how we're going to do this, because they'd also given him a part-time job teaching there. So he was available to stay with the baby if, you know, my schedule wouldn't allow it. But I just, I love the idea of being a mom, and I love the idea of writing. And I said, I just, I don't know what to do. I said, this is a good job. It's a steady job. It's, you know, it's a, a respected job. I don't want to walk away for, from it because uh, to write full-time when I haven't made any money. right? You know, I have no job. If I walk away, neither of us has a job. And he said something to me which, I mean, I, I can't tell you how big of a, a change it made on my life or both of our lives. He said, do you want to have this prestigious job and do it all your life and be well-respected and not have ever done what you really want to do, which is right. He said, is it it really worth it? He said, I think you'd be much happier writing. He said, you have to decide. And he said, I will support whatever you decide. I mean, that's an incredible thing. It changed both our lives because I said, I don't want, I don't care how prestigious the job is. I want to write books. So I said, this is a good time to quit because I just had a baby. And all the women (laughs) at the university said, please don't say you're quitting because you had a baby. (laughs) Because there was so much pressure back then. And it wasn't really the reason I was quitting. It was part of it. I was quitting because, well, it was very complicated. I mean, I love being a mother and I wanted to be with my child and I didn't have an option of maternity leave. So that seemed like a good time to make a change that I would probably be making anyway. If I had loved the job, the way I love writing, my husband and I would have found a way to work it out so we could be good parents and do what what we love.
0: Right. But the child gives you the activation energy to make that
1: shift. That's a perfect description Mm -hmm. of it. So I told them, I mean, I said I'm leaving because it's not working out rather than, you know, And they asked me to stay for a year to finish some projects I was doing with students. And they said, we'll tell you what, we'll call you an an affiliated scholar or something like that. You can have your office. And they asked my husband to take over my classes. So we had a little bit of income for that year.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And again, it was bliss, you know, instead of being on the beach all day, I got to be with my daughter all day, which was wonderful i take her around places you know and start planting and right. the
0: seeds that would eventually produce a mathematician as well but we'll talk yes. more about that later yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> she's like her mother <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i mean it sounds like so far at this point the idea that you would actually set up a plan and execute it to decide what you're going to be down the line that's just nuts you've been kind of shifting direction Um. Based on interests and opportunities all along, until you get to this point where you're focusing on your family and you're starting what would prove to be uh, a very substantial career. At this point, did you still feel like you were just kind of I'm just gonna try this and see what happens, or you're like I found this. I
1: knew. I knew the moment I put pen to paper, and actually, as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I quit for a few years, because I knew it would take over my life. There's something about being a writer. It's not, oh, I'm going to choose to do that. You have to do it. Okay. And that's, I I am at my basic fundamental personality, a writer. Okay. I just like to tell stories.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you would advise, like, somebody who's like, I want to be a writer, but I don't have to be a writer. That's probably not going to work out so much.
1: Well, It depends you know a lot of people right and especially now because there's so many more options you can self-publish your book and it's no long there's no longer stigma attached to it the way before the internet and online books and, and electronic books before all that the only self-publishing was vanity presses where you paid someone to m- make a book out of what you wrote
0: right i mean that's what we did at aops so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it worked out eventually um
1: Well, now that's because AOPs, you were on the forefront of this new wave of self-publishing.
0: Just before. We were in 1993 when we put out the first books. But then when we built the new curriculum, the full curriculum, that was 2003. And that was was a lot easier.
1: I think I may have gotten some of your very first books. They look completely different. Yes, you did. (laughs) They're like silver, I
0: think. Yeah, yeah. They were all like a grayscale covers Um, yeah
1: my daughter loved those
0: so you start writing you start sending books out you start doing all this stuff how did you get published how did you start to get traction
1: well I was fortunate I didn't get as many rejections as a lot of writers back then did I wrote a few short stories and sent them out and I got a few rejections and then I started getting these letters that said well not this but I liked this part. They were personal letters from the editors of the science fiction magazines. They said, so, well, I like this, but not this. I had some questions about part of it. And I was so naive back then when they said, send us something else. I sent them something else without saying you asked to see this, right? Mm-hmm. So I got back a letter, it was Analog Magazine. I got back a form letter saying, no, we're not interested. And I did something you're never supposed to do, which is I wrote them back and I said, but you told me you were interested. You said, send you something else. And then I did get back a personal letter from the editor saying, yes, I do like your writing and you know, send me some more information. I mean, not information, send me some more stories. And my first accepted publication, I think was analog. It was Stan Schmidt, who was the editor for many, for decades of analog magazine. And it was a hard SF story about a a fighter pilot who pushed his supposed plane past its capabilities. So he actually pushed it to leave the planet and do things it wasn't supposed to be able to do. And that was called light and shadow. And he did that because he was grieving over the death of his wife. So there was an emotional so, aspect. A story
0: to underneath, yeah.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, um, there was an author at the college where I was teaching named Joan Slonczewski, who was a wonderfully gifted science fiction author. And she was also a professor in the biology department. We became friends. She looked at the book I'd written in graduate school, which I'd submitted to one place. I think I sent it to DAW. And they wrote me back and said, well, not this, but we like your writing. You know, we'll look at something else if you have, when you have it ready. So I showed it to Joan and she said, I think my editor would like this. His name was David Hartwell. He's one of the top editors in the field at Tor Books. So I sent it to David on her recommendation. So that got me a foot in the door. And it okay. got me a foot in the door with one of the top uh, options available at that time. David said he liked it. I'm trying to remember. I sent him one book, which is, it was the original version of The Last talk, which is actually my third published book. He said he liked it, but he had to wait since I was an unknown author. It's very hard to get them published. Okay, and then he he changed jobs, or he I don't know if he lost his job or something. But he had to send it back after about a year. And he said, you know, I, I like your writing, and I like the fact that you can write hard SF. And I mean, science fiction with a very sound basis in known science that you extrapolate using the laws of math and physics to predict possible what-ifs, you know, what's, what what would, supposing this happened with the equations, that would lead to all sorts of exciting things. He said, I'm looking for that kind of science fiction, and you can do it. So I wrote this book called Primary Inversion, which was based on one of the novellas that Analog had liked, and I sent it to him when he had a, a, he was at TOR. He was, I don't think he was at TOR when Jones suggested him to me. He moved to TOR afterwards. So he had my book for a year, maybe even longer. And at a later date, he told me what happened. He said he kept, you know, they'd go into these meetings and they'd say, okay, what are you working on? What are you editing? What are you editing? And all the editors would talk about their various projects. And then if you'd found a new author, you'd you'd put them forth. And he said each time he'd start to put my book forth and he could tell from the way the publisher's reacting, it was going to be a no. So he'd pull it back again. And he goes, yeah, I wore him down. I just kept doing that, and finally said, "Okay, you can have it."
0: <laughs> Interesting. So you had a champion there who was who was yeah yeah, yeah.
1: And, and he was well, very well respected in the field because he's 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 a very excellent editor.
0: Right. And he proved to be right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Primary version was my first book. Tor published it. So and then
0: I, you mentioned early on, a little bit earlier about uh, working on rewriting, rewriting, and improving your craft. How do you do that? You know, you're not taking writing classes or anything like that. What are you doing to mold your writing and, and improve? I just
1: write. I write and I read. I write a lot better now than when I first started because I've written, you know, more than 25 books. It's classes. I never took a creative writing class. The only one I ever I took a, a creative writing workshop once while I was in grad school. And they all told me I was wasting my time writing science fiction. They said, this is garbage. Not that my writing was garbage, but that the genre. But just
0: science fiction isn't respected.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, you know, that's, that's what you get out of creative writing classes all too often. What you really need to do, being a writing major in college is not necessarily and often won't work as the way to become a published professional writer you get an excellent background i mean the knowledge of literature and how to look at and how to analyze it and how to write how to put together sentences is all good but that's not really the best way to become a writer you you have to write Mm -hmm. what you want to write and i just started out writing science fiction because that's what i loved and i wrote voluminously and i had read it I started probably reading science fiction when I was 6, 5 who, or 6.
0: Who were your favorites? Six. Who were your models as you as you became a writer? Who were the people that you read that kind of inspired
1: you? Well, I actually read less when I started okay. writing because because my time was spent writing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still read But I also didn't want to be influenced by Mm -hmm. other people's styles. But you do have to read to know the field. And before I started writing, I used to get books at the library when I was a kid and read five or six or seven books in one weekend. Just, you know, they had to get me a a library card for the adult library because I went through the kids' science fiction and fantasy. And, you know, by the time I was seven, I think.
0: Yeah, that was that was my childhood as well. I was much yeah. more of a bookworm than I was a math kid. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it lays the seeds, you know? Yeah.
0: So how do you how did you start to get traction? Like what ended up getting your books to be on so many lists of award winners and finalists and all these sorts of things?
1: Um I don't know. <laughs>
0: it's a good answer.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I came tor believed in me and they pushed my first book they actually pushed it the hardcover as literary sf i mean it's a big space (laughs) adventure with space battles and you know all this yeah you know all the characters it's kind of a family saga as well as a, a hardest science fiction with all these mathematical ideas from a paper i wrote for the american journal of physics but they pushed it as literary SF, and you can see when you look at the cover of the hardcover, mm-hmm. it looks it's white and it's got these sort of pink lines on it, like computer, but it looks very literary. And there's this blob, dark blob in the very center. And if you look really close at that blob, you can see these little science fiction, you know, ships. Uh-huh. It was, it was a space battle, but you couldn't tell it. It just looked like this is artistic or literary science fiction. And then a lot of reviewers said, well, this was really lots of fun space adventure stuff. Why did they put that cover on it? Well, I think they did that to get me reviewed. And I got a lot of reviews. I mean, Publishers Weekly. Interesting. You know, I was, made some lists of top new authors to look at. But then when the, the paperback came out, it was this bright blue book with a space battle on the cover. Right. <laughs> you know, they, they threw away all pretense of, we got okay, we got her the critical acclaim, now we want to sell it, is the attitude.
0: So was that like just a super exciting time for you? Like, people are reading my
2: stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was. It, my first publication actually was in an anthology edited by David Hartwell. And it was before he bought Primary Inversion. I think he wanted to see what I was like to work with. So, so he told me, "Will you write the story for this anthology. It's a Christmas anthology. So I wrote kind of a science fiction take on the gift of the magi. Okay. And he, he wrote me back and he said, well, it's too much like the gift of the magi. <laughs> I said, well, it's supposed to be. It's a science fiction take on it. He said, yeah, but you either have to refer to that in the story or else, you know, it looks like you're copying the story. Mm-hmm. So I think I did. I think I referred to it in the story, except you know the hair plays into it in a very different way. She uses her hair to make a holographic film so that she can escape this situation that she and the guy are stuck in.
0: So still, but, the heroine is rescuing her guy. That that hasn't well, left your childhood.
1: Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> in fact, one of the the guys, you know, the, the my friends when I was a kid mentioned to that me one to that that to me once. He was one of the few people I actually told the stories to because he asked about it. He wanted to know. And he mentioned at one point, you know, the girls always rescue the boys. (laughs) He said, the girls are the ones in charge. And I said, well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I had never realized it until that point. That's but great. the seeds of what late, I later became known as, you know, a feminist who writes challenging books that challenge gender roles and the status quo and, you know, uh, powerful women at a time when there weren't a lot of powerful female protagonists in mm-hmm. science fiction. I think that's where the seeds came from. It was just in my brain when I was a kid.
0: Right, and this wasn't like a conscious thing for you. You were just no. writing the things that came up to you. and
1: Yeah, you know. yeah, I was. I, guess, I think I was born a feminist. I just didn't know it.
0: <laughs> so when you, when you build these stories, are you, are you starting with a scientific concept or something you want to get across and you build a story in a world to explore that? Or is it the other way around? You have a story in a world... And you start in that world, in that story, finding ways to explore scientific or mathematical ideas.
1: Well, I don't really analyze it that much. I didn't when I first started writing. Um, I made up the characters first. Okay. You know, the 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 girl that I made up who went out to save the universe, she became Saws, who was the main character in my first book you know, much more mature. I mean, I had to redevelop the character when I actually started writing. But that's what I started with, the characters and then what's their relationship to other people. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I had read thousands of science fiction books by that point in my life. And I'd been steeped in the the canon of science fiction, Asimov, Heinlein, all the, the greats, uh, Ursula Le Guin was one of my favorites. Uh, When I got older, you know, Anne McCaffrey. um, I read a lot of Marion Zimmer Bradley, Joan da Vinci, all sorts of, uh, um, all was science fiction and fantasy, though more emphasis probably on the science fiction. So that's what I naturally wrote. I didn't originally write Conflict in the sense of battles, which is people think is funny because there's a lot of military SF now in my books. Mm -hmm. But originally the the conflict was the situation. And then people started noticing that and saying, well, who are the antagonists? And then I came up with these awful antagonists that, you know, people, a, a race of beings incapable of empathy. Which makes them all, I mean, they're terrible people.
2: <laughs>
1: so they make good antagonists. Right. But it was the the puzzle. I like solving, I've always liked solving puzzles. That's probably why I like, you know, another reason I like coaching math.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think of writing is really is problem solving.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's the science fiction like if you write a mystery you're, you're looking for justice the resolution is justice is achieved if you write a romance the resolution is emotional satisfaction is achieved if you write a western it's well i'm not sure what it is <laughs> it's you know the 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 sense of pioneer triumphing yeah. as a pioneer science fiction it's the intellectual justice you solve the intellectual problem yeah. but then people started saying oh I like that your hard science fiction is good and you know the, my yeah. first reaction the first time David Hartwell told me he liked that I wrote hard science fiction I said what is that <laughs> well, what do you mean I've never heard of that he said you know you put science in it and my response was I do
0: yeah interesting and, yeah
1: interesting. I didn't think of it I am a scientist I've thought in scientific and mathematical terms almost since the day I was born. I used to imagine wave functions because I saw a picture of an atom when I was like six years old in my da- one of my dad's books. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. That looks so cool. It just looked right to me. So it's just but,
0: intuitive to you that we don't really know where the electron is or what it is. or
1: Yeah, it you know. just it's all math. And I think it's because basically I'm a mathematician at heart. The mathematics is beautiful in quantum mechanics. The mathematics in classical Newtonian mechanics is sort of more everyday. It's more mundane. Just like regular fiction, mainstream fiction is more mundane. Science fiction is more exciting. Quantum mechanics is not mundane. It's more exciting.
0: No, no, that's that's definitely true. So <laughs> your success in writing combined with this this scientific background you have, it's led to a variety of of other opportunities i'm going to ask a few about a few of these and i suspect there are others that i'm not aware of so you were president of the science fiction and fantasy writers of america what what are the issues (laughs) that authors face like
1: well it varies a lot one of the big things is control of our you know what rights do you keep control of and it's very complicated First rights, rights in the United States, English rights, world rights. How long do you have the rights? Can you get it reprinted? What, When do you get your money? When do you get the rights to your book back? Especially now with the electronic world being, you know, the electronic industry being so huge, your books can stay in print forever, which makes it much more difficult for you to get back the rights to a book, even if it's not selling anymore, because they can sell a few copies of it as an electronic book right. used to be at a point when the sales of your book fell below a certain level, you automat the rights reverted back to you you could do what you want with the book. That's much trickier now. So that whole field, there's a lot that goes on in science fiction and fantasy writers of America, you know, looking, uh, we we even have a group called GriefCom that you can go to and ask for help if an author is having trouble okay. getting paid for their work or getting back rights, uh, any of the those type of problems in the industry. Mm-hmm. Being not getting your proper royalties is very complicated. I mean, sometimes the smaller publishers now that there's a lot more independent publishers. Because it's not so expensive to make a book anymore, right. you can make a, a success of a publishing uh, in um, business doing eBooks, which have none of the overhead of making hard copy books. Right, but it's also because a lot of these are smaller publishers; they may go out of business and not pay royalties that are owed to the author. So the author may seek help from Grief.com to say, can you see if you can get the money they owe me? And Grief.com is trained to do this or they learn, they're volunteers, but they learn to do it, usually trying to minimize the sense of confrontation. So they go to the publisher rather than the author having to go so the author doesn't burn bridges. There's, There's that kind of thing. There's issues like authors don't have medical medical
0: and all yeah yeah all the kind of
1: all that stuff retirement programs we have none of it and people often think authors should be willing to write for free like well you know could you donate could you donate a story give me a story for this thing because the the receipts are going to this great charity and if you just give me a story it'll help us make money and you know I'm sure it's just a story. People think it's just a story. They don't understand. That's the author's only source of income. Right. It's not like they have a job being a professor and this is something they do on the side.
0: Right. And there are no guarantees.
1: There are no guarantees. Yeah. You have to spend what time you have doing something that's going to pay the bills because who, who's going to pay your bills? Who's going to yeah. pay for that doctor's appointment Right. you don't have insurance? Sometimes people will say to me, they say, scientists do not get paid for writing. In fact, they give away their copyright. And it's true. If you have a scientific paper published in a journal, like, say, the American Journal of Physics, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I'm not sure if they still ask for copyright. It's been a few years since I've submitted anything. But to scientific journals, like the Journal of Chemical Physics is another one. They don't pay you. You give them your manuscript and they publish it and they have to have the copyright so that it can be republished according to, to yeah. you. And people say, well, so why don't you just give me your copyright and write this and I'll give you exposure and say, no, it doesn't work that way. The professor, let's say this professor is, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year salary and they're you know, a tenured professor, and let's say they write two papers a year, which is actually quite a bit, not, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say the average number of papers produced by all the professors in the country is probably nowhere near as high as two papers a year. Yeah. But let's say they write two papers a year. That's the final product of being a research professor is your paper, right? Publish or perish. But you got paid $100,000 to do that. Right. So essentially, you're being paid $50,000 per paper. You know, it's you're not doing it for free. Right. The writer who does fiction does not have a job associated with that that pays them, you know, anything. Right.
0: Yeah, that's that's it's I mean, it's brave what you did at the beginning there to jump into this sort of a career with with this sort of uncertainty. So now the Internet. I mean, as you've already just mentioned, has changed publishing in some very fundamental ways. How has it actually changed the writing itself? Or has it changed the writing itself at all?
1: Well, I couldn't write without word processors. Not, <laughs> that's not directly connected to the internet. Right. I'm dys- dyslexic. or slight, I, I don't know how dyslexic I am because I learned so many coping mechanisms over my life mm-hmm. that it doesn't really affect me much now. Um, I didn't know when I was young. All I knew was all my friends could read their textbooks and it took me forever. Mm. It's one of the reasons I didn't study because reading, but I could read fiction really quickly. And I finally learned as when I was in my 50s actually, what was happening is I was speed reading. That's what they teach dyslexic to do. If you learn to speed read, you don't have to read the individual words. You read in clumps and this was really easy. I taught myself to do that when I was in first grade. So I could read incredibly fast with reasonably good comprehension, but you can't read or write that way. You can't, I mean, you can't read technical information. You can't get detail. Yeah, if you're reading a math, like you know in math counts, when they put up those problems for the countdown round, the ones that are big word problems that are a paragraph of words, I'm usually on the first sentence when they finish doing that problem. I haven't even gotten past reading the first sentence because you need every little detail. Right. So when I would write, I I write, I constantly revise. I don't write, some people write and the first few sentences they put down they're happy with Mm -hmm. and they spend a lot of time putting down the right sentences. I like just write fast, really, really fast and then I go back and clean it up. And the computer tells me all the places where I transposed letters and stuff. Right. And I couldn't do that without a computer, without the whole online world. Because once you have a computer, it's like a, a sculpture you can shape. You can move paragraphs around. You can read it as many times as you need to. You can fix all your errors. I mean, I keep copy copy editors in business, right? I have to go in and fix all my stuff. And I don't see a lot of the errors because I train myself to read fast. So I may have written, instead of writing burlap, I may have written burped, right? Right. But I don't read the whole word, so I don't catch it. So I have to go over it and over it. You can do that with the word processor. You can tell it, when I hit the word BR, Write burlap right right you just hit br and it fit, gives you the proper spelling yeah. so in that sense even if i didn't have problems with you know the, the having to look at details so closely i still don't think i could write well without the modern changes that have come about because i just write by you know constantly revising always <laughs> constantly revising as far as the internet itself, you can look up anything on the internet now. You have to check a lot of places and make sure you're getting accurate information. But it used to be you had to go to the library and you could say to the... They had a, a librarian, you know, no computers. And a librarian there who was much better, much friendlier than any computer. <laughs> You'd say, well, you know, there's this quote I heard. I don't remember the exact quote. And I don't know who said it. And I want to use it in my book. And I don't know if I have the right even to use it. And I did this once. Mm-hmm. And the librarian said, OK, give me your phone number. So I gave my phone number. And I went away. And she called me up. It was either a few hours later or it was the next day when she got back in. She said, OK, this is the quote. I found it for you. This is who said it. And yes, you do have the right to use it in your book. It's, it was out of copywriters' name. You know, that was amazing. You can't right. get that now. Right. But you can just look it up online. <laughs> you know, it's like, it takes you two seconds to say, oh, that's what the quote is. But yeah. then you have to figure out, you have to check a few places and make sure whoever wrote it didn't write it wrong. Right,
0: right. So in the midst of all of this, you became very involved in coaching math students. Yeah. How did
1: that happen? How did you get started? That was my daughter. Oh, yeah. She was bored stiff in school and getting flack from Mm -hmm. her teachers for working too hard, which was ludicrous because she wasn't working hard at all.
0: Working too hard meaning she was doing her own stuff at at this time?
1: No, like one time they were reading a book and they were supposed to write down words they didn't understand and define them. And they were given, you know, a few pages to read each night and said, you know, write down a few words. But she said, Mom, they told me only to read a few pages. And this I'm really bored because I could finish the book in one night. And I said, well, go ahead and finish the book and write down words. And so she she got really interested in the project. She wrote down all these words she didn't understand. And she defines them. And she's really proud of it. And it was one of the few times I saw her get excited and into a project to the point where she said, yeah, I was thinking about it in bed last night. And, She goes in the school, and the teacher, instead of saying, my God, that's amazing what you did, was horrified. She goes, why did you do all that work in front of the whole class? She said, that wasn't at all what you had to do. You only had to read these few pages and write three words. And, you know, my daughter came home in tears. Right. And then she started saying, Mom, they won't teach me math. I said, what do you mean? This was in first grade. She said, well, I taught myself to multiply because they won't teach me in school. And so I gave her a list of problems. I said, multiply these numbers. And she said, da-da-da-da-da. And I said, what's five cubed? And she said, 125. So I went into a first grade teacher, and I said, you know, my daughter's bored. Look at this. She taught herself to multiply. And I said, your daughter's not ready for the GT class. And I said, really? I said, are you sure about that? And I said, oh, yeah, she's really quiet. She doesn't make a fuss. She's happy. I said, no, she's not happy. Yeah. <laughs> she just not her nature to yeah. make a fuss. Well, we did this, we went through this for first, second, third, fourth grade. Every year it was a fight. They wouldn't give her, they'd say, we'd finally talk them into putting her in the advanced class. And they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, she's getting A's in this class. And then they'd want to put her back. I don't know why. She didn't come across her teachers as a math type. She took one test, and this is something students should know she didn't understand the test the way they were testing it it was a way of answering she'd never seen you're given two choices of an answer Mm -hmm. and i guess they didn't explain it in a way she understood so she did terrible on the test and it was like something she took in second grade so they said you're not gifted well if a student knows they're bored parents shouldn't be afraid to
0: they should fight yeah. yeah,
1: to fight for their kid because I was afraid to. Yeah. I thought, well, they're telling me she's not gifted. And they kept going back to that one test, even when she was 99th percentile and everything else yeah. that they'd given her since then. It was in fourth grade. Yeah, I think they just didn't want any more kids in the GT program.
0: Yeah, I went through something like this in middle school. I took a, To get into a GT program in Alabama, I took a test in a closet while holding a cat. <laughs> and they decided from this test that I and half the test was drawing a picture of myself i am oh my not God. an artist um so and that that did bring in the parents and uh they they were okay. successful fortunately okay. but so i mean obviously you were able to maintain her interest i met i met your daughter at canada usa math camp where she showed me some trig identity proofs i'd never seen before so oh how... she loved
1: that well the thing that happened was um we got her an outside tutor who used to be a GT teacher in the system. And she took me aside one day when I told them we, we had to fight every year to get my daughter in the GT program. Said, your daughter's one of the most gifted students I've ever seen. She said, you go in and fight. And this is something I would like all the parents... I know parents have a lot of pressure not to go in and do that because teachers say, oh, go away. You know, There's this pressure not to to fight for your student okay. or your child because, and understandably, I know how overworked the teachers are in the school system. So you need to be very polite about it. You need to take into account the fact that these overworked teachers are, have many, many, many things pulling at them. And when a parent comes and says, but my child's ready, you know, you have to be very tactful but you also have to, this teacher said to me, you're your child's advocate. Nobody yeah. else is going to advocate for her if you don't. So we did, and she did get in the GT program, and she thrived. But then she started coming home and saying, I'm bored. It's, I feel like I'm playing. She's two years ahead in math. And she goes, I feel like I'm playing. So, you know, she started taking algebra, I think, when she was in fourth grade. And they, Johns Hopkins wrote a letter for the school saying, in fifth grade, put this child in algebra. She's ready. And the school just said no. They had reached the point where they wouldn't go any farther. Okay. They said, she's not ready. Nobody is ready to do algebra in fifth grade. And I said, she's bored stiff. And at that point, my daughter said, will you homeschool me? Mm-hmm. And at first I said no. I mean, I came yeah. through the system. I was part of the system. Oh, she's articulate. But <laughs> she talked me into it. And then I said, Well, okay, go talk to your father. Mm-hmm. And her father's also part of the system. Said, What? <laughs> what is yeah, what homeschooling? homeschooling?
0: Yeah.
1: She talked him into it. He's kind of a pushover. He's a big teddy bear. Right? <laughs> so then, the first day of school, I called up the new principal at her school and I said, Well, my daughter's bored, especially in math. She wants homeschool. And the principal said, No, 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 no. This is not good. You don't want to homeschool your daughter. We have plenty of opportunities. I said, we've been fighting this for years. And it is a big decision. And I get asked this a lot by parents, too. Should I homeschool my profoundly gifted child? It's not an easy decision. I talked to the principal for an hour. And at the end of the hour, you know, she's saying, well, you have to do what's better for your daughter, not what the parent, you know. And I said, well, have you talked to my daughter? Right she said i'll interview her tomorrow so she interviews my daughter and then she called me and she said i see what you mean right i was almost hoping she'd say to me well i think we can give her what she needs because i was afraid to homeschool Mm -hmm. but she said i think you need to homeschool your daughter i don't think we can offer her what you need and that shocked me because not usually something the principal of the school tells you
0: yeah yeah that is surprising
1: well, we had her tested at that point, and they said your daughter's ready to go to college. And I said, my daughter's ten years old. I'm not sending not her. Ready.
0: <laughs> Mom's so, not ready for her to go to college. <laughs> oh,
1: no kidding, really. But she didn't want to either. I mean, right. she went to UMBC, the local college. She had a friend there who was he was actually enrolled. He enrolled at nine, and he graduated mm-hmm. at thirteen, Then he went to MIT. But yeah, then I homeschooled her for a few years. And then she just started taking more and more classes at the college so you know the irony is she actually took her math classes once she started doing like calculus and, and all that she deliberately went to the college the university to take them there because she was she's getting into her teen years you know mm-hmm. <laughs> she, yep. she don't want to be with mom she's tired of mom <laughs> So she did a lot. We called that her college prep, but I mean, she'd finished a lot of a math major by the time she graduated high school. Okay. And she told me later, she went to um, Cambridge. They were the top, I think, ranked math department the year she went in the world. She told me she was glad that she'd done the college work because she got breadth requirement. You know, when she went to, to UMBC, she was taking stuff like history. She wasn't enrolled there. She was what they called concurrent student, which is now called dual enrollment, which meant they allowed her to take up to three classes, but she was not uh, getting a major. Mm-hmm. And we didn't transfer any of her credits. We just called that all her high school experience. But she told me afterwards that because she had history and music and, you know, I think she had a psychology class. I forget all the classes she took. She had gotten the opportunity to experience college breath requirements. Because when you go to a place like Cambridge, it was just all math. Right, right. A little bit of theoretical. It's a lot, a
0: lot different than the United States college experience. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Very different. They have five years of high school, I think. In yeah. England.
0: And much I mean. more focused in college.
1: Yes. It was like getting a master's. And she did get a master's. Her fourth year, she got she got her, her undergraduate degree her third year. And her fourth year, mm. they gave her a master's. And now she's writing her doctorate. She's just finishing up at UC Berkeley. Yeah, that's yep.
0: fantastic. So in the middle of all this, you're inspired by her or maybe forced by her might be the right phrase to build your own educational institution of, a, of sorts there.
1: Well, that's not that's not what I was thinking. I was <laughs> thinking it would be nice to find her some other homeschool kids mm-hmm. so she can have a math club and interact. So that's what I did. And it started out with, I think, five kids about her age came over to my house and did math games. And then I don't know what happened. It like went boom. Right. People like my teaching and I had a lot, I, you know, I, I love math. So I had no math worries at all. Yeah, I could no teach fear. any level. Yeah, up through college. I could teach anything from kindergarten to advanced college classes. And apparently that was much in demand in the homeschool community. So it got huge. I mean, within a year, a year or two, I had hundreds of students. And then she went, and they were all mostly homeschooled. But mm-hmm. then word got out in the community that there was this teacher that nobody would heard of who had a Harvard education in physics and math who would tutor your kids. <laughs> and I started getting people saying, would you take my yeah. kid? You know. And so I took a few. And then my daughter went to to Cambridge. And she had scholarships, but, you know, it's going overseas. It's expensive, no matter how you look at it. So I had to go get a real job. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I taught physics at a local university for four years. Yeah. Well, when she finished and she went to grad school and they they started supporting her. So I was done. I thought I was going to write full time. And I had one student left. One middle school, well, actually I had a couple older kids, but one middle school student who was homeschooled, and we thought we found her math counts team, but there was something, you know, right. <laughs> homeschool community, you know, breaks up fragments, reforms. And she said, you know, I can go to math counts by myself, but it would be nice to have a team. So all I did was put out a notice on some homeschool listserv saying, I'm looking for three math students
0: and to you do get 30 60 100
1: <laughs> it started out with people going oh yeah this looks like fun do you teach algebra one i said well i could i could teach an algebra one class so i started saying anyone want this and there was this flood of people and then people said "Would would teach algebra two and then would you take a team to you know the johns hopkins mm-hmm. tournament all of a sudden Within a matter of months, I had several hundred students. And these were no longer all homeschooled. Somehow word got out via the networks of there's various schools in the area and they'd grown over the year. For example, not far from where I live, there's a Chinese school that meets on Saturdays. It's very, very talented math students. Word got out to these networks that there's this woman (laughs) (laughs) with a Harvard education who'll teach your kids. And it just went boom. And this time it really went boom. I mean, yeah. within a couple years, I, had, I was coaching 10 math counts team. I had the top kids in the state. I was bringing kids to PUMAC, you know, the Princeton right. and Harvard, right. MIT. And it just, people would come to me and say, well, my school is having trouble getting a, this math thing started. And I figured out what I was doing is what we call a math circle. I just hadn't thought yeah. of it that way. And I started working with the school, so I was providing services and it varied. I was working with about thirty different schools. And you know, some schools they could do a lot of it and I would advise them. Other schools, I essentially ran their math, competitive math program. But I couldn't I, I couldn't keep doing it. I just it one person can't right. run a program that big. Right. So what I started doing last year is contacting various people who are interested and saying, well, can you take over? Mm -hmm. Like one school, fall quarter middle school had someone who already wanted to do it anyway. The PTA supported him. So he's taken over. He worked with me last year and this year is running the whole program. Yeah. That's great.
0: I mean, you get you time back to writing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. I'm a writer, (laughs) but I love teaching. I mean, I love the kids. I love the parents. They're wonderful. So it, it was enjoyable, and that's part of why it pulled me away from the writing, because I liked doing it. Right.
0: <laughs> well, I usually wrap up by asking my guests to give advice to students who want to follow in their footsteps, but you've gone a lot of different directions, so I'm going to let you choose which of those to give, give advice for.
1: Wow. <laughs> um, I think my advice would be to don't be afraid to follow your interest in what you love, what catches your interest, even if it's not what people think you should be doing. If you love math and, you know, people think, well, you should be on the football team. Well, that doesn't usually happen. To our staff, it's usually The other way around, but, you know, if someone tells you, you can't do something, don't believe it. And don't, if, don't be afraid to change. You don't have to decide in middle school or high school what you're gonna do for the rest of your life. You should follow up all your interests.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. That, sorry, go ahead.
1: I just eventually it'll become clear. And don't don't be afraid to follow up what interests you, even if it's not what you thought you were gonna do.
0: Well, that's fantastic advice. Uh, as as someone whose career changed dramatically uh, in his 20s and only somewhere in the mid-30s figured out what it was to do, I, I heartily endorse that. So in closing, I'd like to give you the floor to let people know where they can find out more about your work.
1: I have a Facebook page. It's Catherine Dot Asaro at Facebook. B-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E dot A-S-A-R-O. Okay. And I have a Twitter account they can join me on, which is Catherine underscore Asaro. And I post a lot there. I also on Reverb Nation, I have an account as a musician where I put up music stuff.
0: Fantastic. We'll put links up to all of that in the show notes so they can check out your music, learn a little bit about the Diamond Star Project. Um, and this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. My guest today has been Dr. Catherine Asaro.
1: Well, thank you. I enjoyed
0: it. Thanks for listening to Aftermath. You can find show notes for this and other episodes on our website at aops.com slash aftermath. We want more people to discover this podcast, so if you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with others you think will enjoy it. Then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. I'm Richard Rusick. See you next time. Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, through which we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of eager math students around the world. Our textbooks, online school, in-person learning centers, and various online resources empower students to develop the skills they'll need for success at top-tier universities and in internationally competitive careers. Come check us out at aops.com.